Heavenly Father, you are a God who gives good gifts, and we thank you. You are a good God. We thank you for the many good things that you have given to us. We thank you that ultimately the goodness that awaits us is beyond any good thing we could enjoy in this life. And we look forward to that day. But until that day comes, we live our lives as unto you, including the giving of our offerings and our tithes. We do this in worship, Lord, because we love you and we're thankful. We know that you don't need this, but we give as unto you in thankfulness and in faith that you would take and use these things according to your will. Lord, take also us, our very lives, and use them according to your will to accomplish all of your good purposes. May we continually submit ourselves to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 and beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, was no, no, in their mouth no lie was found. For they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and of its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you to hear your Word. And so we pray that you would take it and speak it to our hearts. Lord, we need your Spirit's work among us today to open our eyes and to show us wonderful things from your law. And so we pray for that. We look to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.
Well, following the dragon and his beasts and all of the havoc that they would wreak, our attention is now moved to this scene. It is a scene of the redeemed in heaven, the people of God in heavenly worship, secure in their heavenly position. They are singing before the throne, and central to this image is the Lamb standing there on Mount Zion, their King and Redeemer. This is followed with the three messenger angels, or followed by the three messenger angels sent out with warnings. Uh, The warnings are that of judgment. Judgment will come on those who do not look to the Lamb in faith. And so, as we've seen again and again, the gospel is both a message of judgment to those who would reject it, and it is a message of hope to those who trust in Christ. And then the section concludes with this exhortation for us as the saints of God to endure, to endure to the end, followed by a blessing of hope that is found for all who die in the Lord. This portion of Revelation really captures why I wanted us to go to Revelation. Uh, When when we were entering this phase uh, last year, and not just... uh, not just the things that are on our mind. It seems like it's not just one thing. It's many things. Um, What I wanted for us to see was our risen Savior reigning sovereignly over all the messes, over all the sadness, and especially over all the confusion that marks our day. We need to see Christ ruling and reigning. And this portion of Revelation really captures that, I think, clearly. It doesn't shy away from describing the wretchedness of a fallen world in which we live, and yet it's filled with hope and help for us as we walk through this life day by day. Because of the troubles we face in our lives, there are many times where we don't feel joyful, many times we don't feel thankful, many times that we feel hopeless or don't have hope, and this is why we need to return to the gospel, but also to passages like this that show us the fruit of the gospel, where the gospel takes us, that there is a sure hope, a real future, a future that is secure in Christ, that in our redemption, what Christ has accomplished for us is going to be fulfilled. Because we walk by faith, not by sight. And there are many times where we can wonder, is it all true? Is it all going to come true? And yet here we see in this passage described for us where it all ends. And so if you find yourself today uh, in that position of not feeling thankful, not feeling joy, not feeling hopeful, then pray even now that God would use His Word to speak into your heart, to stir up these very things as we fix our eyes on Christ. Look in verse 1. The portion of a new vision is indicated here by then I looked. That's a phrase we've seen over and over again. Here's another portion. Uh, It moves our perspective up to heaven and to the future because here we see the Lamb with the 144,000 who represent the redeemed of God throughout the ages. We've looked at this number before. We won't unpack it again other than to say 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles representing the Old Covenant the New Covenant multiplied by a thousand, a multitude. This is a picture of a, a, a group of people beyond number. Uh, this is the redeemed of God. 
And the further we read into the text, the further we realize that this is who it is because that's what is described. These are those who had their, uh, the name of him and his father, Jesus the Lamb, uh, written on their foreheads in verse 1. They are singing a song that only the redeemed know. And so by inference, it is the redeemed who sing the song. You see that. Then in verses 4 and 5, we see the description of the redeemed. And all of these things apply to us as the bride of Christ. We'll unpack that in a minute. So John is seen into the future. He's seen an image of the redeemed with Jesus. Uh, and in this picture is us. We're in this group. So this is a forward picture of what we will one day participate in. Now, there is some question about, is this on earthly Mount Zion, the, the, the mountain on which Jerusalem sits, or is this in heaven? And we don't have to get very far to see that this is the heavenly Mount Zion. Look in verse 3, before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders is where this is positioned. Now, Zion is used over 150 times in the Old Testament. And it is, uh, it's used to represent the people of God. It's used to represent Jerusalem. It's used to represent the temple. But it's most often used to describe the future. The eternal city of God that would one day come. This is what we see in Psalm uh, 2. We, we keep coming back to Psalm 2. I think we've looked at Psalm 2 every week, at least for the past three weeks. Uh, it's this messianic psalm. And in Psalm 2, verse 6, we read, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this is clearly pointing forward uh, to when Jesus will return as king. So the imagery that John sees is Zion in heaven or the new heavens and the new earth. It's a forward picture. It's a future picture. And we are in it. John describes hearing first a voice like a roar of water or sound of thunder. Then goes on to say it sounds like harps being played. And then finally as singing. How do these three things go together? Have you ever heard harps? being played. I mean, harps are one of these, like, soft, almost, you know, just how do harps and thunder and roar and singing all go together? Well, John is, and I say straining with a sense of reservation. I'm straining to say straining. Uh, I say straining because John is reaching to describe in words what he is witnessing in the vision that it is beyond words that he has. So he's straining to use things that we can understand as the readers for what he hears. But if you've ever been to a large conference uh, where Christians are singing, where you have thousands of people, it's this way at General Assembly every year, and this year was especially true. We had over 2,000 commissioners, and then at worship, you know, four or 500 additional people would come in. So we're in this one room, 2,500 people singing I can't even remember all the songs we sang, but it was fantastic. And so it's this, it's a song, it sounds like singing, it's melodious like harps, but it is also thunderous. There's a roar to it, and I often imagine what people outside the hall, the convention hall that we were in, uh, wondered what they thought about it, because it's unique. And so that's just a, a tiny, tiny uh, bit of what John witnesses in this vision. And so we understand then why he describes this as a, a great waterfall, the roar of a great waterfall. It is the song of the redeemed. It is sung by all of those who have put their faith in Christ. It's a song that only they can know, verse 3 tells us. A song of praise unto our God and unto the Lamb for His saving us from death and hell. 
And then in verses 4 and 5, we see the description of the saints of God, those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. The first description is that they are pure. He uses the word virgins. And this points back or takes us back to the way the Old Testament used uh, the, the, the image or symbol of sexual immorality and idolatry uh, interchangeably. In other words, as the people of God went after or were tempted to go after the idols of the nations, they were often described as adulterous or cheating on God. Hosea is one of those prophets that that entire book is kind of dedicated to that image. But we see this in other prophets. Ezekiel in chapter 16 uh, wrote that Israel was playing the whore when they created idols. Now, these are harsh terms. These aren't terms that we use in our uh, common everyday language. They're a little uncomfortable maybe to hear in church. But these are part of Scripture, and they, they help us see. I hope that we, it bothers us a little bit because the, these kinds of things should, it should bother us. We shouldn't get comfortable with the idolatry that lures us in this world. Uh, Israel, after they had been saved by God uh, mightily through the Exodus, after they were carried through the wilderness, after they were led into the promised land and God uh, cleared the way for them and gave them that land, then First Chronicles 5.25, but they broke faith with the God of their fathers and whored after gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So there's this adulterous kind of component. God is a jealous God. And so when we cheat on him, so to speak, he becomes enraged. And so that's why this language is used. Now, it's not just describing um, only men or virgins in the sense of people who are single or celibate. These are symbols. And the way that we're to understand this is the pure bride of Christ. That's what John is describing here, that we as the people of God are the pure bride of Christ. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11.2, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So there's this picture of purity here, something that is hard for us to understand because we know we're not pure in and of ourselves. We know, I, you know, even if we act like it or fake it or, 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 or put on a front, we know what's really in our hearts. So we need to be reminded what has been accomplished for us at the cross. Titus 3, 4, and 7, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have been washed. We have been made pure. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about it in the past tense to show that it is certain Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so the people of God who have been sealed with the name of our Savior on our foreheads have been made pure. We stand pure, not because of any righteous thing that we've done, but because of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. Know that. (laughs) 
Know that. You have been made pure. The redeemed are not only holy, they follow the Lamb. Verse 4, wherever He goes. As believers in Christ, we are called to walk in obedience, to follow the lead of the Good Shepherd. We do this by following His commandments, which are never burdensome, but for our good. And we do this by following His commission to make disciples of all nations. So there's a kind of a, a militaristic element to this imagery. The idea of following uh, a leader that, and this can also be tied in back to the first uh, description of purity. So the, the, the soldiers in the Israelite army were to remain abstinent before battle, in preparation before battle. You see this in Deuteronomy 23. So there's this idea here of a single-mindedness of focus. That we in our lives fix our eyes on the Lamb, the Good Shepherd, uh, living lives that are pure and obedient in sacrifice to Him. That means that we live with purpose. That we, we don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to fritter away the moments that we have. We don't want to give up the, the stewardship of every breath that God has given to us. We don't simply want to accumulate stuff or to, to build a, a secure, some sense of security that makes us feel good about the future. Just as Jesus lived a life of laying down His own for others, so should we. This is what ought to mark believers. Um, the, the world will know you by your love, Jesus told His disciples. Right? What does love look like? Well, Jesus showed us what love looks like. Philippians 2 is that great passage that describes how he um, laid his life down and it calls us to, to consider the needs of others more important than our own. That's what love looks like. Now, you could think about this in the far out places, the needs of everyone in the world, and it could almost feel overwhelming because the needs are always going to outweigh your strength and resources and abilities. So let me just encourage you to focus... Focus close. If, you're, if you live in a home with a family, start there. Consider the needs of others more important than your own. I can almost guarantee you, this is at least true for me, that that's enough to focus on. <laughs> that there are enough opportunities in my home alone to consider the needs of others more important than my own. If you're single, if you, if you live alone, look, look to your neighbors, look to the people that God's put in your life. Look to how you might live differently for their sake to give up your preferences, your wishes, your desires, your comforts. That's what love looks like. The third thing is, his people are described as the first fruits for God and for the Lamb. The first fruits in the Old Testament were literally the first of the harvest, the first fruits to be harvested. And they were given or sacrificed unto the Lord, given to Him in thankfulness and as a designation or a, a, an indication or a, a, that, that everything belonged to God. And in the same sense, we do that in our offerings. We know that, that God doesn't, He didn't need the fruit. He didn't, He doesn't need our tithes and our offerings, but we are indicating that everything belongs to Him, that He's given it all to us in the first place. So we didn't earn this. We didn't accomplish this. And so here is a picture of the redeemed testifying before all creation that God is the creator and He owns it all. It is only by His great mercy that we are saved. And again, it is a call to live lives as sacrifice unto Him. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says to present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is what our lives ought to look like. Finally, the elect are described as blameless. This is verse 5, with no lies in their mouths. 
We've talked about Satan as the father of lies. And so all who follow him and follow the beasts follow lies. They get wrapped up in the lie. They become a part of the lie. And so as believers, we ought to be set apart. We don't need to get wrapped up in the lie. What does that look like? Well, it not only looks like us believing the truth, but it looks like us um, staying committed to the truth by faith. Right, Even when things don't make sense, even when it doesn't add up, we're committed by faith. But it also means that we're going to speak the truth in love. Uh, We're not going to use the truth as some kind of weapon. uh, But like Jesus used the truth, we speak it in love to those in need of the gospel. As his sheep who follow him wherever he goes, we follow his example as the suffering servant in whom was not any deceit found in his mouth. It is so easy for Christians to get wrapped up in things that happen in the world, things that uh, you can easily get caught up in that are part of lies. We need to be discerning. We need to show wisdom. We need to be careful that we're not caught up in things that are a part of the beast's systems. So as the redeemed, then, we are to face adversity and trouble in this life, impurity, obedient to Christ, living lives of sacrifice with no lies in our mouths that we might shine as lights in the darkness. And then in verses 6 and following, we see the three angels in John's vision. They're sent as messengers, the first with a warning of judgment and a call to belief. Note that the angel brings an eternal gospel to proclaim to everyone who dwells on the earth. We're familiar with that phrase by now, those who dwell on the earth. That's John's indicator of those who are unbelievers. And so here's a picture of the gospel going forth to those who do not believe. It is a, is a warning of judgment of what awaits, but it is also a call to faith. It shows that no one is excluded, every nation, tribe, language, and people. And we understand this in the sense of general revelation. Romans 1 makes this clear that we're without excuse because God has revealed himself uh, to us uh, in the, the, the realm of general revelation, that we look out and we see this is, there's no way all this stuff just kind of popped into existence. But Jesus, in speaking specifically of the end times in Mark 13.10, said, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all, the, to all the nations. So here we're talking about special revelation, the fact that the gospel must go out. It's why we're committed to seeing the gospel go out, that we aren't to remain lax about this. We understand this needs to happen. And so we work and we give and we sacrifice to that end. This eternal good news... A message of those to those, to those who reject Christ. Uh, it is a message of judgment to those who reject Christ, a message of hope to those who trust Him, because ultimately we are saved from His hour of judgment. Verse 7. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon the Great. It's the first time we see Babylon in Revelation. We're going to see it again. Uh, Babylon doesn't exist anymore, right? It's, it's a, a part of history. And so, uh, why is John using this symbol here? Well, it's used in this, uh, in, in, in Revelation to point to ancient Babylon. It's pointing to what they had done. Babylon had taken Israel captive, led them away into Babylon. They had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in the process, caused a lot of destruction. But God cared for his people. 
Uh, we read stories like those in Daniel or you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or the story of Daniel himself, how God preserved his remnant, ultimately delivered them. Paul Gardner writes, Babylon understandably thus became a symbol for a world and its rulers and people who are set against God. These people try again and again to conquer God's people and force them into compromise. Babylon is also, of course, the very city in which God's people find themselves protected by God. Eventually, God himself brings judgment upon this Babylon as surely as he finally brought destruction upon the Babylonian empire. So Babylon then is, a, is another symbol for what, not just pointing backwards, it's, it's, it's understanding that John's readers would have, they would have understood what Babylon represented. And so they're looking at that time to Rome. Uh, that was the Babylon in their minds. That's not the Babylon in our minds in our day. Uh, we have our own versions of this. But Babylon is a symbol here again for Satan's work. You see these symbols that represent throughout the book of Revelation the work of Satan and his schemes. He's not very creative. He does the same stuff over and over. He lies. He questions God's word and he questions God's goodness. And here his work is described in verse 8 uh, in a seductive way. That one of his tactics is seductive. We're going to see this again in the book of Revelation. Verse 8 says, Who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And while this pictures the work of Satan among the nations, it is also a warning to us as believers that we must take seriously the ramifications of sexual sin and to resist the intoxication of its allurement. We have to be on guard. There is an enticement. Satan would love nothing more than to sidetrack us, to get us distracted, to to lure us off track. He's a saboteur. And sexual sin is one of the ways that he loves to to use or, or, or make use of in the lives of believers. We have to be on guard. The third angel warns again of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Verse 10. Now, we've talked about God's judgment in previous passages, that this, this comes out of His holiness, that because God is holy, judgment is necessary for justice. Here, that justice is described further. It's, we're given some details as to what that justice looks like, and it is a picture of hell. Look in verse 11. Fire and sulfur, their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. Now, some have suggested that this is symbolic, um, and I'm not trying to, to, to switch the game up. I think the angel is symbolic. You know, John is seen in this vision an angel. Uh, it's a symbol. Just as he sees the 144,000 and the lamb, these are all symbols. Don't misunderstand. I've said this before. I want to say this again. Allegory takes a story. It takes symbols and images and so forth. And it, it tells a story that <clears throat> is almost like a tale. What we understand from Revelation is that these symbols represent very real things. We're not understanding this allegorically. These are very real things. Hell is a very real place. The Lamb is a real person who has accomplished our real salvation. The 144,000 represent a real redeemed people that will one day be in heaven with Him. Do you understand the connection? So the angel then is a symbol that John is seeing in his vision, but it doesn't make his message, the message of the angel, symbolic. So I don't think we have to understand it that way. But even if we did, it's still a symbol of something horrible. And we have many other passages to go through in Scripture that are not apocalyptic that describe hell in the same exact way. Jesus' own words in Matthew 5.22, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Jude 1.7, 
all describe hell in the same way that it is here. So this is not allegorical. The reason I'm saying this is that some people take this and they go to the realm of annihilation. There is no biblical teaching of annihilation. This is eternal torment. And yes, it is awful. It's awful. Who wants to believe something like this? We should not find any pleasure in it. We should not want anyone to go to hell. Nor should we joke about going there ourselves like it's some kind of party. Hell is eternal torment. And it is described as a warning to everyone to repent and believe. Fall upon the mercy of God. Recognize what Christ has done for you. No one is righteous. None of us. No one ever has appeased God. No one has ever earned His favor. Nor can anyone ever earn His favor. Salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. And it is only when we trust Him alone that we can escape this eternal judgment that we see described here. It is an eternal judgment that is rightfully ours. Yes, hell is rightfully ours. I think that we have forgotten that in our day. I think that in our own time, it's because it's not a popular concept. We've convinced ourselves that we're really not that bad. And the culture constantly tells us that man is basically good. And I think that's infected the church to, to, to the point that we think, well, we're not all that bad. I mean, you know, it's worse people. We watch, you know, we read history or watch old movies and realize it, it, times that are much worse. Scripture tells us that our hearts are deceptively wicked. There there is no one righteous, no, not one. That means that our hearts are so deceptively wicked that we could convince ourselves that we're basically good. Think about that. Because that's what we've done. We have so deceived ourselves that think that we're basically good, that we're not that bad. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death. Hell is rightfully ours. And so when we think of the salvation that Jesus has accomplished, it makes it all the more grander. To think that we have been saved from this makes the glory of the gospel shine all the brighter. It is beyond our comprehension. These messages that these angels bring then are noted in verse 12 as a call for the endurance of the saints. That's really the thrust of this section of chapter 14, that the churches in Asia Minor and all of Christ's church throughout the age might persevere to the end, that we might hear this and read this and understand this and endure to the end. And while it is God who holds us and keeps us, no one can pluck us from His hand, we are called to walk in obedience and holiness. We don't just let go and let God, as some might describe it. We are called to fight for faith. We are called to to struggle All of those descriptions are in there. It's not a meritorious struggle. We're not earning it. Christ has earned it, but we still fight to believe and fight to obey. We we obey the commandments of God while we trust in the Lamb. You see, we do this in faith. The moment faith leaves the picture, Scripture tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. What happens when we do righteous things apart from faith and our own strength power and our own sense of righteousness, the Bible describes them as filthy rags. See, you can't please God apart from faith, even after salvation. So it's not that faith delivers salvation to you, and then you walk by your power or your effort, or you do your part. You walk by faith continually. You are sanctified by faith. Faith is an ongoing an ongoing um, uh, a part of, of the way that we live our lives. We do it by faith. 
We're continually looking to Christ. We obey by faith and in faith so that we stay strong to the end. We're not to give up. We're not to throw in the towel, but to keep our eyes fixed on the author. And the result is that we're brought safely home. That's the picture that we see in verse 13. Not only are we saved from the torment of hell, we're saved into perfect rest. And I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people appreciate this, to hear this, that there's rest coming. True, real rest is coming. We who are in the Lord are called blessed in our death. And the Spirit affirms the blessing. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. And while this blessing is beyond measure or comprehension, it is at least in part that we will rest from our labors. All of our pain, all of our sorrows, all of our striving and persevering through distress, it will all come to an end. There is rest coming. For those who are in Christ, there is rest. Today we rest from our labors. We gather together in worship and we mark this day uh, by a day of resting from our labors. And in this time of gathered worship, we're hopefully rejuvenated and refreshed by the hope of the gospel that we sing about and proclaim. But this is not perfect rest and we all know it. We all know it because we're fighting off the thoughts of what's coming tomorrow. (laughs) Monday's coming. That dread of Monday, right? And so this is just a foretaste. But there's a perfect Sabbath rest that awaits us. For all who are in Christ, we are called blessed when we die. True rest. This is the second beatitude that we see in Revelation. The first is the one that's written in your bulletin. It's there every week. Revelation 1.3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, written in it, for the time is near. This is the second beatitude. Do you want to guess how many beatitudes there are in Revelation? Seven. That's right, so we're going to see five more. I haven't taken the time to look at all that. There's a lot of, a lot of little... Um, uh, Easter eggs, uh, if you're familiar with gaming or, or, or videos or whatever, where, little hidden things. Uh, that There's a lot of these sevens in Revelation, and I don't want to get too caught up in that because some people kind of go off the deep end with numerology, but there are a lot of sevens that John has placed here in Revelation. This is one of them. It's kind of neat. So there are five other Beatitudes, blessings that are pronounced on us. Blessings that include our forgiveness, blessings that include our ultimate resurrection, blessings that include our being made pure. Here, the blessing is called our death. Why is it a blessing? Because we will know perfect rest. This passage should not only warn unbelievers against the judgment that they may repent and believe, this passage should should give believers deep comfort and hope. Four things. One, comfort and hope that this life matters. Our days matter. Every breath that God gives us matters. There's purpose. We may not see it. We may not understand it. There might be at times we think we know better than God. Why am I here? Verse 13 states, Their deeds follow them. There is a heavenly reward. We are stewards of the lives that God has given to us and our lives matter. And so our prayer ought to continually be, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to use my day, my moments, my hours? Secondly, we have been sealed with the name of God, purchased by Christ and secure forever. We are safe even if we face persecution or death in this life. Don't forget that. 
Why do I say that over and over again? Because it is so easy to become anxious with all of the news and the things that unfold in our world. It is so easy to become filled with fear. Remember whose you are. Third, we are blameless and pure in Christ, not having our sins counted against us, but having been washed by His blood and accounted with His righteousness. Again, something we know, it seems so basic. Why do I say it here? Well, it's in the text. But it's something that believers need to be reminded of. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy, that we fail to believe what Christ has accomplished for us, and we beat ourselves up, and we drive ourselves in the ground because of our sin, Uh, because of the way that we continually fall back into old patterns, we need to recognize what Christ has accomplished for us and the great forgiveness that is ours. And fourth, we will know perfect rest from our labors, from all sadness and pain, true, deep, and abiding rest. The day is coming when this will be our reality. No more striving, no more laboring. Hear the words of our Savior. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, a familiar passage about your yoke, and yet one that I don't know that we really comprehend that you are gentle and lowly in heart, that your commandments are not burdensome, that you will give us rest. Lord, would you take these truths and drive them home, that we might see your abundant goodness toward us in our salvation, that we have been saved from what is rightfully ours, death and hell, We have been saved from your just wrath because we deserve it. We've been delivered from incalculable torment. Lord, may we be forever thankful. May we not be complacent, Lord, in our lives. May we not become uh, indifferent to the fact that there are so many who need to hear the gospel. Would you move us to follow the Good Shepherd to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Lord, would You help us to be lights as we live our lives, we do our jobs, we carry out our business. May we reflect the goodness that has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we long for the day when we will know this true, deep, and abiding rest. Until that time, would You help us endure to the end. May we not get distracted. May we not become indifferent. May we not become discouraged to the point of throwing in the towel. Lord, help us to endure to the end by fixing our eyes on the Lamb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response.